0: Today our text is Revelation 7. Chapter six, last week, ended with a rhetorical question. And the question was, who can stand? After rehearsing the unveiling of judgments, these seals that have been broken, we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the horsemen of false messiahs, false messiahs of war, of famine and death. We saw kings and great ones and generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, running for the hills, hiding in caves. And the question, who can stand, is an emotional question. The message translates it like this, they hid in mountain caves and rocks and dens calling out to the mountains and the rocks, refuge, hide us from the one seated on the throne in the wrath of the Lamb. The great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand it? And the answer to that rhetorical question is no one. That's the point. Revelation 6 is designed to be overwhelming it's designed to help you see and understand the judgment of God. It's designed as a chapter to make you tremble. And I want to encourage you that as we continue our study of Revelation, and when we come to texts like Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 6, to not read Revelation with emotional distance. When you read this book, when you hear it, you can expect to feel unique emotions and maybe even physical reactions as you query this wonderful, inspired text. I want to encourage you to engage in it. I was thinking of this. I was, over the weekend, was watching a documentary on the 2015 earthquake that struck Nepal. And there were hikers halfway up the summit to Everest when an earthquake happened. And there was GoPro footage of the avalanche that came and a hiker that was buried in the snow and they were showing footage and I found myself holding my breath I was like and finally when they uncovered the person I went I'd engaged I got in the middle of the documentary and I want to encourage you to get into this text the question who can stand is an important one the question is how Do we process that question if we're Christians? It's a question, who can stand, that surfaces the problem of reckoning with the evil effects of sin in the world. You could ask it maybe this way. If Revelation chapter 6 is going to happen, how are Christians going to make it? Revelation asks that question at a macro level, but I'm sure you've asked it at a personal level. If you've lived long enough, I'm sure that you've found yourself saying something like, I don't know how we're gonna do this. Or you saw an email that came through at work and you wonder, I don't know how much longer I can stay here. Or, because of some hardship in your life, you may ask the question, I'm not sure how I can live like this. Or as you watch the news, I don't know what's gonna happen, and I'm scared. All of these questions and concerns are the reason why Revelation 7 is in the Bible. This particular chapter is designed to encourage believers with a central truth, and here it is, namely, that God protects his people. Aren't you thankful that God protects his people? Let's try that again. Aren't you thankful that God protects his people? There's nothing that happened to you last week. Nothing that's going to happen this week. Nothing that's going to take place in the future that is outside of God's sovereign control and from which, if you're a Christian, God won't be able to help you with. There's nothing, nothing. Nothing can separate you from his love. So we see this in our text in two ways. We see divine protection, and we see that it leads to sustained worship. So divine protection and sustained worship. Let's unpack these to see the way that God protects his people. First, divine protection in verses one through eight. You might think of these verses and really all of chapter seven as an interlude. The vision that John sees next cannot be taken chronologically like The vision happened next, but what John is doing here is he's recording a vision that serves like a flashback. So the the vision that he sees happened after chapter six, but chapter seven is designed to be a different angle on chapter six. It's important to understand that. The the apocalyptic literature is complicated. We're gonna see that big time today. What John is expressing here is exactly what he saw. He says in verse 1, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. So these verses are designed to focus our attention not just on the judgments from chapter 6, but particularly on God's protection of his people as these judgments are unleashed We see that while everything is falling apart, God still has a plan to take care of his people and to lead them safely home. In verse 1, we see four angels at the four corners of the earth, and there are four winds. These angels, they're standing at the four corners of the earth, which is meant to communicate that they are providing ruling authority over the entire created order. Think of them as guardians, They stand, according to verse one, at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. They're holding back these four winds and these aren't little breezes. (laughs) This is the wind of destruction. These are the angels and their positions holding back judgment. Now, it's important for you to understand there's connections between Revelation 7 and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Daniel. Last week I said that there's a connection between Revelation 6 also and Matthew 24. Well, there appears to be a connection here between Revelation 7 and Zechariah 6. Look at this text. Zechariah 6 says, again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had, a, had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven, after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. Now, that's important because it would seem that there are many Old Testament parallels, prophetic parallels, that are taking shape in the book of Revelation, and these must have been important to John and his readers who would have been well aware of them. So John's vision here in Revelation is connected to the Old Testament while helping us to understand the message that's here about the future, Look at verse two, there's another angel. Another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, so coming out of the east, and notice what he has. He has the seal of the living God. The seal of the living God. This, this, this massive angel, this mighty warrior has a royal ring which was the mark of ownership and protection and privilege in the ancient world. And notice what this ring is designed to do. He called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the seas or the trees until we have, here it comes, sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. In other words, hold back the judgment until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. So the sealing of God's servants on their foreheads is not a new concept. Sealing in particular is not new. Think the Old Testament moment of Exodus when God passes over his people in judgment And the seal, symbol of the blood on the doorpost, causes judgment to pass by. That's one example. Another would be Ezekiel chapter 9, where we read these words. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. The glory of God here is leaving the temple God is departing from his people. Judgment is coming. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had, had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Just understand that the seal Motif is really important and it sets out, listen carefully, the kind of people who live in a broken world, who are a part of God's community, who see the brokenness of the world and they find themselves sighing at how broken the world is. Do you feel that like, like that? So the idea is that God is going to seal those people who are His. This idea of divine protection and sealing isn't new. It's all throughout the Bible in a variety of ways, and the point is simple and it's really important, namely, that God protects his people. Sometimes it looks like God completely delivering them outside of the context of judgment, but more often it looks like helping them to endure through suffering while not delivering them from being part of the suffering. What happens next is fascinating, and complicated, and debatable. (laughs) Again, I wanna remind you, this is a sermon, not a class. My goal is that no one will be happy with what I'm about to say next. Verse four tells us that the number of those who are sealed are 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. There are some who take this number literally and connect it to the national Israel collection of people. They see this as the number of national and ethnic Israelites who will be followers of Jesus. Others take this number to be more figurative, symbolizing perfection. They might point to the fact that this list of tribes, interestingly enough, starts with Judah, which lists like this rarely do, replaces Ephraim as a tribe with Joseph, and doesn't include the tribe of Dan. So it's not even a complete list of all the tribes. If you look to Revelation 21, you'll find that New Jerusalem, interestingly enough, has 12 gates inscribed with the 12 tribes of Israel, and the whole city is built on the 12 foundations, which are inscribed with the names of the 12 apostles. What's more, remember I said this is debatable, complicated, the measurements of New Jerusalem, in Revelation 21, or Revelation 9 rather, are 12,000 stadia wide by 12,000 stadia long. So it's like a cube, if you will. So the question is whether or not this is a literal term or a figurative term, and if it's a figurative term, he's using it to describe perfection in the same way that if someone were to say, man, that guy's a 10. Doesn't mean he's literally the number 10 but it's a figurative of perfection. Another view is that this collection of 12,000 could be seen as armed forces, God's forces, arrayed for battle, organized in battle stations, and they wage their war, though, differently. And like the savior and king who has given his life for them, this army is ready to give their lives and to worship their way to victory. Now, set all that aside for a moment, regardless of who the 144,000 are, in your view of eschatology, the overall spiritual point cannot be missed. Namely, that God protects his people. Church, he always has protected his people. His deliverance looks like helping them in their struggle with the promised assurance of both his promise and their identity in their relationship with him. That's why the seal is so important. So God doesn't promise his people the complete absence of suffering, but rather he does promise them that their hardship will not change who they are. That's really important, regardless of what kind of hardship you face, Christian, in your life. God does not promise the absence of difficulty, but what he does promise is you will never lose your identity with him. He doesn't promise that the road ahead will be easy, but he does promise that evil will never be able to separate us from his love. Or as Eugene Peterson says, we are protected from God separating effects of evil even as we experience the suffering caused by evil. Again, we are protected from God separating effects of evil, even as we experience the suffering caused by evil. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme of sealing in Ephesians chapter one, when he says this, in him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that Holy Spirit of promise, Paul writes, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, the seal of Christ upon the Christian life now is the Holy Spirit, which is the down payment of what is yet to come. And it's no wonder that Paul in Romans eight says, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? Because God set his sovereign seal upon those who are his, and no matter what the devil throws at God's people, that seal, that seal can never be removed. That's a promise. That's an assurance. But that also comes with a caution, because that promise and assurance only applies to God's people. Nancy Guthrie, in her book, on the book of Revelation, believes that Dan and Ephraim, those tribes, aren't listed because of their unrepentant idolatry. She looks at the list and believes that Dan and Ephraim aren't there because those were tribes that participated in the rebellion and they never turned back to the one true God. The point is they were Jewish, but they weren't part of God's people. She suggests this. John is demonstrating that not everyone who is part of the visible church on earth will prove to have received the mark of God that is given to all who embrace his covenant from the heart. It was true in the days of ancient Israel. It was true in Jesus' day, as we know that one of the 12, Judas, was really a pretender. It was true in the first century, and it's true today. So you may be here today and you're in church or you're listening and that's a wonderful thing unless the only reason that you do it is because by doing it you feel a little better about the show that you're trying to keep running. And in your case, Revelation 6 in contrast to Revelation 7 should make you ask some really important questions like, am I really a follower of Jesus. Not just do I go to church, not just I was raised in a Christian home, not just I did these religious activities. Some people have their spiritual life completely in the past tense. If I were to ask you, tell me about your spiritual life, it would be what happened five years, 10 years, 15 years ago, but the present reality of what it means to follow Jesus is so dissonant from the past that you might even wonder, Do I really believe this? Oh, be careful you're not a pretender. Be careful that you're not just in Christian spaces, but that you really are a child of the living God, that Jesus really is your savior and Lord because the only ones who fit under Revelation 7, the protection of God, are those who are truly his people and there's always people within God's people who aren't really God's people. Oh, well, let that not be you. So there's divine protection. There's also, secondly here, sustained worship. Remember that the book of Revelation is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. The exaltation of Jesus is central to this book and worship is a key element, an essential part of what makes the book of Revelation so important. Worship is everywhere. Remember in Revelation 6, how, or Revelation chapter 5 rather, how, how worship exploded from the throne? It exploded like a ball being dropped in a lake with ripple effects. But we see this again in chapter 7. In verse 9, John heard about the 144,000. He heard 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, and then in verse nine, the next thing that happens is he sees and he looks and he sees a great multitude that no one could number. There's an innumerable amount of people. Before it was 144,000, now it's a number that's impossible to quantify. And what's more, once again, we see that the composition of this group is global in their scope. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, it's the same kind of description that we saw in Revelation chapter five. In fact, this vast assembly all have white robes and branches. We saw those robes in Revelation chapter six, symbolizing purity and reward. And these palm branches now hearken back to the triumphal entry of Jesus, or the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths when the people of Israel celebrated God's provision when they were in the wilderness. These these symbols are just stacking on top of each other. It's unbelievable. Notice what they say in verse 10. They cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Don't miss the focal point. These are divinely protected people and their divine protection over their lives leaves them stunned, not with how they persevered, not with their obedience. They're stunned not with their own faithfulness. No, they are stunned with gratitude to God's graciousness. James Hamilton writes, they do not credit themselves for overcoming. God sealed them. They state plainly that salvation belongs to God. This means that their salvation is not due to the right choices they made, the virtue of their character, the superiority of their wisdom, or the strength of their will. Salvation belongs to God. God saved them, so they praise him. Christian, what did God help you with this week? Think back of your week, where, where did you see God's help? And can you be reminded that God, in his mercy and in his kindness, is continually helping you? Or maybe your phone, like mine, blows up every once in a while with a memory from a year or so ago or two years ago, and you're just kinda shocked with, wow, how different life is now, or man, do I look tired in that picture. And you begin to think about all the things you've gone through, and in the moment when you were in it, you were wondering, how in the world am I gonna make it? And now looking back with a little bit of distance, you could tell the story that every single day, God in his grace helped you to make it each step along the way, that if somebody were to ask you, how did you do that? The answer would be, yeah, I didn't, God helped me. That's the story of God's people. Verse 11, once again, we see, this praise of God and the Lamb echoes through the throne room. The angels, the elders, the living creatures, they fall on their faces in worship. And we come back to this string of praises like, pearls on a necklace that we heard in chapter five, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, verse 12. This is, this is incredible worship. It's massive in its scope. It's loud, it's overwhelming. And notice here, it's repeated. It's repeated. In our human experience, repetition can make something feel less significant. Instant replay helps us to maybe see how a football or a soccer play worked out. But how many times can you watch an instant replay until you're tired of it? Or maybe a good movie. I'm one of those guys, I don't like watching good movies more than once. How many times can you watch it without an internal eye roll? As you get older, you can even kind of have a little bit of a mindset that little captivates you repetitively. You may think, well, I've seen one, seen them all, you might say, but yet think of children. Do children operate that way? They don't, do they? If you're a mom or a dad, you're doing something really fun with their kids and they love it, what do they say? Do it again! If you're a grandma or grandpa, you do something silly and your grandkids start cackling with delight, they say, do it again, grandpa, do it again, do it again, do it again. And eventually you have to say, okay, that's enough. (laughs) You know why? Because there's no disappointment, there's no cynicism. They haven't grown old. They haven't grown accustomed to things ending. To them, they just want to hear it over and over and over and over again. Church, I want you to understand that is what it's going to be like to be in the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You will never grow tired or weary of hearing the statement, Salvation belongs to our God. Like a child, you're going to say, Say it again, say it again, say it again, say it again. And it's never going to be old because every time you say, it's like it's new for the very first time that's what's happening here it's pure unadulterated delight nothing forced about this worship no one needs to provide instruction okay now when when the lamb says this we're gonna say together salvation it just happens there's no classes on learning to praise the lamb It's spontaneous because it's obviously deserved. This is worship that happens because it's so fitting. Something else interesting happens here in verses 13 and 14. John and one of the elders have a conversation while all this is happening, all this is happening, and then one of the elders slides over and starts talking to John, and the elder asks John who the white-robed people are, and John replies, you know who they are. What What is this, what's happening here? The elder identifies them as those who have come out of the great tribulation and whose robes are made white by the blood of the lamb in verse 14. Now, some people take this to be those who've suffered during the great seven-year tribulation. Others see this as a more general description of all Christians, but the point is this. There's this massive group of redeemed people who are worshiping before the throne of God but this elder isn't done. Notice the quotation marks in verse 15 through 17. It appears that this elder breaks into some sort of hymn. He starts singing this beautiful hymn that recounts the promises of God to his people, that God and his people are going to be together, that God is gonna shelter his people with his presence, that all the needs of God's people are going to be satisfied, that the lamb is their shepherd and they will receive ongoing provision. And notice the last phrase, he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Oh, how far removed it feels like we are right now from Revelation 6 where it said, who can stand? This interlude is designed to strengthen Christians when they live in a broken and very difficult world. This is where we see the protection of God and where it is meant to lead. Listen to me. God seals his people so they will continually worship. God seals his people. God protects his people. Or maybe a better way to say it, God protects and seals his singing people. This will be our experience in the ages to come, but can I just suggest something about the here and now? Christian, I want you to think about the fact that worship is a way to fight your battles now. The worship that we see in Revelation seven isn't a temporary worship service. The worship in Revelation chapter seven isn't 70 minutes out of the week of God's people in eternity. And I want you to know that this gathering of God's people isn't just something that you get to go to. The kind of worship that we're talking about in Revelation chapter 7 and a little taste of what we hope you experience every Sunday is a taste of what's actually true and real and right. When we gather on the Lord's day, we don't head back into the real world. Listen to me, Sunday is the real world. This is what's happening. This is what's up (laughs) right now, that salvation belongs to our God. We're just not fully there yet. If you're not a Christian, you have no idea what I'm talking about. What do you mean you sing your way? And that's the difference. You've not tasted and received of God's goodness and his grace. You don't know the overflowing childlike emotion that says, tell me the story again. Jesus died. He rose again from the dead on the third day, and he's coming back. Tell me that story over and over and over and over, not only because it's true, and not only because it never grows old, because that is the story of my life. I'm placing all my hope on that story, so tell me that story over and over and over and over and over with childlike abandonment. We love that story. Why? Because that's our story and if you're not a Christian that's not your story yet but why not come to Jesus today why not read Revelation 6 and tremble and read Revelation 7 and think how can I be protected from the wrath of God the answer is You receive the forgiveness given to you by the person and work of Jesus. You trust Christ, turn from your sins, and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You are sealed as part of God's family. You're adopted into his gracious community, and it makes your heart sing. When I was studying this text, I couldn't help but think of a moment in you in global history, in World War II, when after the evacuation at Dunkirk, with the looming threat of a potential German invasion, Winston Churchill addressed his nation and the world with these famous and courageous words. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We will never, I'll do a Churchill imitation, surrender. (laughs) We will never surrender. (laughs) Eugene Peterson writes this about Christians. These people are not only secure in Christ, they are exuberant. The most frightening representations of evil, Revelation 6, are set alongside extravagant praise. Why? Because Christians sing. They sing in the desert. They sing in the night. They sing in the prison. They sing in the storm. Oh, how they sing. Any evil, no matter how fearsome, is exposed as weak as they sing their songs. God protects his people. Maybe better, God protects his singing saints. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Ready to sing? Stand together with me as our team comes. Lord Jesus, we pray as we assemble now as your people under your watchful and protecting gaze that you would strengthen our hearts as we sing. Right now, for those who've Fallen into unbelief this week, use our time right now to strengthen their hope. For those who feel the weight of a broken world and problems in their lives and in their family and their own soul, God, use our singing to embolden their obedience and perseverance. And Father, for those who are not yet Christians, use even this moment as we sing to be a winsome welcoming of those who do not know you to put their trust in Jesus today. Thank you, God, that you protect your people. Thank you that you protect your singing saints. Hear us now as we confess our allegiance to the one who has overcome so that we might overcome. And we pray this together, all God's people said, amen. Amen.